for tuning into the 417th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, your host, Daryl D. Lane. As always, wherever you are, however you may be listening, I want to thank you for making me and this show part of your day, whether it be via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, IR Radio, SoundCloud, Pandora, or whichever podcasting ever platform you may be listening to me via, being recorded from Buffalo, New York, per usual. Going to have a great podcast for all you guys. Going to have Ryan Abraham. He is... The owner and publisher of USCfootball.com. Have a great conversation with him. We talk about the Pete Carroll days at SC. We also get into Lincoln Riley, uh, him getting hired. Also talk about Caleb Williams, the quarterback transfer from Oklahoma. We also talk about the transfer portal. A lot of stuff I get to talk about with Ryan. Love the conversation. Now, before I get to that conversation, though, I'm going to give my shameless plug as always. First time listener, thank you. But subscribe and follow right now. Also, share this podcast with your friends and family, whether it be via Reddit threads, Facebook groups, etc., etc. Check on the description below. Specifically, if you use Spotify, you can click on the timestamps and it will send you to whichever part of the podcast you would most like to listen to. Follow me on Twitter at Nitrate underscore Lane. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just type in Daryl Lane. You will find it. Uh, I post three to five minute clips of this podcast right here, as well as my syndicate show outside the shop. And lastly, if you have Apple or iTunes, give me five stars and a great review. For some odd reason, right? If you don't like the pod, then fret not. Worry not. Just don't say anything, though. Because, you know what? Your mom always told you. Because my mom taught me this. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. And now it's time for my monologues that my good friend Kenny Sim loves so much. So, as I've been doing uh, with the NFL Draft approaching... Uh, going position by position, giving my rankings from all the scouting I've been doing. Today, we're going to go through the edge rushers. So when I say edge rushers, folks, I mean your 4-3 defensive ends, 3-4 outside linebackers. So I'm just going to give you a quick uh, number ranking of all the guys I have. I ranked 20 guys, so I looked through about 20. So number one, Aiden Hutchinson out of Michigan. Number two, Kayvon Thibodeau out of Oregon. Number three, Trayvon Walker out of Georgia. Number four, Nick Benito out of Oklahoma. Number five, Cameron Thomas out of San Diego State. Number six, uh, Inca Kinsley Engbear out of South Carolina. Number seven, Boy Maffa out of Minnesota. Number eight, Maja Sanders out of Cincinnati. Number nine, George Kalfletis out of Purdue. Number 10, Dave Ajubu out of Michigan. Number 11, Josh Pascal out of Kentucky. Number 12, Tyreek Smith out of Ohio State. Number 13, Jermaine Johnson out of Florida State. Number 14, Arnold Abiki out of Penn State. Number 15, Drake Jackson out of USC. Number 16, Tyree Johnson out of Texas A&M. Number 17, Sam Williams out of Ole Miss. Number 18, Michael Clemens out of Texas A&M. Number 19, Isaiah Thomas out of Oklahoma. And Number 20, Jeremiah Moon out of Florida. So, let's just start with this. I have five edge guys who I think are worthy of first-round grades. Borderline, uh, Kinsley Ingbar out of South Carolina. He's somebody who's a borderline first-round pick, maybe pick 32. High second-round grade, though. But let's start with number one, Aiden Hutchinson out of Michigan. He's a guy that has been projected to be the number one overall pick for the Jacksonville Jaguars. The kid's special. Uh, here are just some things that stand out to me about his game. Uh, 
he is the most complete player probably out of any position. Maybe not the most dominant or the best. I think that goes to Evan Neal. But in terms of being complete, he's ready-made and finished. Good to go. Should be good for 8-10 sacks, double-digit sacks right away in the NFL. Uh, he has an array of pass rush moves. He has the spin move, the swim move, the rip move, and the bull rush. What makes him truly special is he can put all of them together in terms of going from a swim to a rip uh, to a bull rush to using a speed rush to using a swim move to then going to a spin move uh, and then going from power to speed, speed to power. Uh, really good at mixing them all up. Great in terms of hand fighting and getting his hands on offensive linemen and disengaging. He's phenomenal in the run game. Extremely twitchy, quick athlete. He can athlete. He can stand up. Uh, he can put his hand on the dirt. So he has three four four three versatility in terms of being a typical hand in the dirt defensive end or a three four line three four outside linebacker that has to play in space a little bit. And by the way, he showed the ability to cover as well. He's an extremely strong man. Uh, he hustles every single play. He's coordinated, strong, twitchy, and explosive athlete. There is nothing not to love about the player's game, and he has no weakness. No weakness. None. The only thing is maybe a bit better of a natural pass rusher. By natural pass rusher, I mean have a little bit more bend around the edge, right, that these elite pass rushers tend to have. But besides that, I mean, that's nitpicking. Nothing not to like about the guy. He should be a Pro Bowl all-pro guy right away. He should be a guy who's, I know the edge position's, position's deep in the NFL, but guys like Nick Bosa, Joey Bosa, Miles Garrett, TJ Watt, all those guys, but he should be somebody, uh, a Demarcus Lawrence even, he should be somebody that's right in there. He should be a top 10 edge this year. Should have 10 sacks this year. <laughs> like, the dude is special. Then we get to number two, uh, Kayvon Thibodeau out of Oregon. I know there's been a lot of hate about him, but... Uh, I think it's close with him and Hutchinson. First of all, I want to say this. Hutchinson's a tad bit more NFL ready right now, but Thibodeau's not far behind. I think he's a much better natural athlete than Hutchinson. Uh, the former Oregon product, he has exceptional movement and twitch. He's versatile. The uh, lot showed a lot of different pass rush moves. Uh, he could stand up as a linebacker, drop back in coverage, and rush the passer. A lot of versatility there. Uh, can cover tight ends. Can play zone and cover his space. His The way in fluid, fluidity he moved in space was actually kind of impressive for a guy his size. He's, what, 6'4", 6'5", 270 pounds. Uh, he has a little bit of that bend around the edge. He has really good hands. He has a speed rush. Uh didn't get dominated in the run game. You can line him up inside, and he's so quick. He's going to beat guards and centers inside. Uh, if you want to put him inside for a third downs and play, have him play D-tackle. So he showed a lot. And like Hutchinson, there's really no weaknesses to his game. I saw a uh, really special player, number three, Trayvon Walker out of Georgia. A lot of people uh, don't like Trayvon because of his production in that many sacks of Georgia. But I'm telling you. He is a phenomenal athlete with enormous potential. He ran a blazing 4.51 40-yard dash to combine. Like I said, his production wasn't eye-popping, only tallying six sacks at Georgia. But I feel like that's more of a positive. Georgia doesn't ask their defensive linemen to get up field, wide nine, and rush the passer. Uh, it's more like you control your gaps, we play the run, we let our linebackers fill the holes. That's what they do. And I've been watching Georgia, by the way. They have one of the most athletic defenses I've ever seen. I understand why they don't let one guy just go get his numbers because 
They have 10 other first-round picks, right? So it's like everybody has to find a way to eat, and I think Kirby Smart knows what he's doing. He came up coaching defense under the great Nick Saban, the greatest college football coach of all time. So we also know Trevor Walker. He has really good coaching. He's been fun. He's been fundamentally taught how to play the game. He can line up all across the defensive line. Uh, he can play D-tackle. He can play end. He can be head up on a tackle, head up on a guard, head up on a center. Also, he can play wide nine, I believe, with that type of explosion athleticism. He does not have special elite bend, but his power. First of all, in the run game, he's A-plus. He's phenomenal. You do not move this man off the ball. Uh, he was great in terms of his power rush, moving the QB off the spot, always being around the play. Uh, has a great get-off off the ball. Has a great burst. Never gets pushed back in the run game, like I said. The only times I ever saw him give up ground uh, was when he was double teamed. He can also shed and make tackles in the run game. So, really special player with elite athletic traits. Does nothing really bad. Maybe there are some things you would like to see more. And he can play in coverage, by the way. I also saw him do that. So, another guy who's kind of a really high-level prospect. And then at number four, we have Nick Benito out of Oklahoma. So Benito was my favorite watch of this group. Uh, I, I get really giddy when I watch guys like him. He's long. He's 6'3", 250 pounds. He has some 4'3", linebacker potential. Uh, and what I mean by that is he could just be a stand-up linebacker and go get the ball. Right? He can just play middle linebacker and just say, hey, go get the ball. Run sideline to sideline. He has the ability, when I saw him, his fluidity and his hips and his movement and his length, I'm like, he can cover some tight ends. If you have a tight end who's killing, you can be like, hey, go, Nick, go get him. And I think he can do it. Also, then we just talk about his ability as a true defensive end. Uh, he has the great bend around that. First of all, his bend is the best out of this entire class. Uh, gets around the tackle all the time. You can tell he has loose, flexible hips. Uh, the former Sumer, Sooner has tremendous versatility. Like I said, he can drop back in coverage, make tackles in open space, and rush the passer. He's nimble, quick, has great hips. An underrated part of his game was his ability to hold the ground in the run game and take on pulling guards. Uh, not as physical as I would like as a defensive end, but physical enough and showed the want to and the will to. Uh, also, sometimes he did a very good job of avoiding the pulling guard and then just going get, and tackling the running back. So he's a guy that can do a lot of different things. He's a jack-of-all-trades, has elite bend, and he's a guy that could be like a Leonard Floyd where it's like you can match him up in all these different ways, and he's going to be a Pro Bowl player for a long time. I love Nick Benito. Whoever gets him, you are going to get a special football player, particularly if you have a DC, a head coach, who knows how to use him in a GM with the vision. Uh, and number five, Cameron Thomas out of San Diego State. Nobody's giving him a lot of fight, but I loved him. First of all, he tallied 11.5 sacks, uh, so a double-digit sack guy, so the production's right there. Uh, he has great play strength. He was hardly ever pushed on the ground by opposing linemen and always dominated his matchup, particularly against tight ends, which not all players did that I watched. Uh, he's highly skilled, can line up everywhere on the defensive line. In addition, he has a phenomenal swim move that he uses effectively in both the run and the pass game. Uh, he's a guy that I see being kind of a 3-4 defensive end, 4-3 uh, DN. Sometimes can pl probably play D-tackle a little bit in the 4-3. Uh, he's probably not a guy that you want to stand up in any capacity as a linebacker, but in terms of being a true D-end, I love him. Then we get to the other guys. Uh, Kingsley Inbar, another guy, true D-end, can take on pulling blockers, can rush the passer a little bit. Uh, I found an ability to avoid cuts, which I really liked. Has good play strength. Didn't get pushed back too much. Can push back the tight end. Uh, then you get Boy Mafa out of Minnesota. Uh, explosive, quick, twitchy. Can drop back in coverage. Uh, has some bend. Has a speed rush. Uh, 
right? And then you get into Miser Sanders out of Cincinnati. He was a guy that, honestly, initially I wanted to put him in my top five, but then I was like, oh, he's like, what, 6'2", 6'1", 230 pounds, 228 pounds to be exact. I think that's what he weighed in at the combine. And I'm like, how can you be a defensive end and weigh 228 pounds? It makes no sense. It's like a linebacker. It's really like a linebacker, like a 4-3 linebacker. He's like a linebacker that you want. I'm like, I don't know if he can cover. I don't know if his hips are as fluid. I do know this. He can freaking rush the passer. He has good play strength, good quickness, good burst, can get around the tackle. And I'm like, my God, I don't think he can be a full-time DM just because he's he's a smaller man physically. But he's a guy that if you want him in on those third downs, right, to wreak some havoc, to wreak some havoc, uh, he can be a guy that comes out and has like six to eight sacks, and he's like, okay, he becomes one of the better third down guys in the league. Probably will never be a full-time player, but he can be a moneymaker on third down. Uh, then you get to George uh, Carfletus out of Purdue. Uh, a strong, powerful man. He's twitchy. I love his power rush. Uh, you have Josh Pascal out of Kentucky. Uh, strong guy, tough to move. Holds his ground really well in the run game. Thick body. Thick, powerful man. Uh, David Jabo out of Michigan. Explosive. Can rush the passer. I didn't see a variety of moves I really liked. Those are really gets the guys I liked. Uh, Jermaine Johnson out of Florida State. I wasn't as high on, high on him uh, as uh, some other people are. I thought he got dominated by Titans too much for my taste. When it came to the run game, I did not see the elite bend. I know he probably he did well at the Senior Bowl. I have not watched the Senior Bowl tape. That's something I'm probably going to get to before the draft. I've watched, uh, I got the chance to watch six-ish games of him at Florida State. I just wasn't impressed from what I saw. So again, the true defensive ends out of the guys who weren't in my top five, Kingsley Enbar out of South Carolina and Josh Pascal out of Kentucky, those are going to be guys who that are going to be your 4-3 DNs, maybe even play a little bit of 3-4. DN actually, Kingsley's probably going to be a guy to be a stand-up linebacker. But 4-3 ends, and guys who can hold their ground, rush the passer a little bit, and just be solid starters. Like I, I don't see either of these guys being necessarily Pro Bowl guys, but being starters 8 to 10 years in the league, can be a starter for a really good Super Bowl defense. That's what I see them. Uh, Jerry Hughes-like in terms of just being a guy who's just a professional guy who hangs around the league for a long time. 10 years of just being a solid starter. Maybe have a couple Pro Bowl seasons here and there, but just a start, a solid starter in the NFL. Then you get to the power rushers, guys like Arnold Abiki out of Penn State. He throws his body around with reckless abandon. He's kind of twitchy. I love his ferociousness. And David Jabo out of Michigan, who a lot of people were high on. I just need to see more variety of his passing for, from his pass rush moves. But he's an also guy, kind of, of a power rusher. And same with George Carfletus out of Carfletus out of Purdue. He was a pass rusher, pass power pass rusher as well that I really liked. And then you get to the speed rushers. There were a lot of speed rushers. Speed rushers: Boy Maffa, Myja Sanders, Drake Jackson, Tyree Johnson out of Texas A&M, Sam Williams out of Ole Miss, uh, Michael Clemens out of Texas A&M, Tyreek Smith out of Ohio State, and Jermaine Johnson out of Florida State. All these guys can rush the passer. Tyreek Smith is actually a guy I liked as I was watching him. He has really good bend around the edge. I just want to see more power in his legs as he bends around to just finish the bend and not let these tackles fall on top of him. But if he does that, he could have had like easy like six to eight more sacks. And then he's a guy that you could be looking at and you're like, damn, he had a sneaky 10-sack season in there, right? 
he has that type of potential. He's a guy that I would be like, don't be surprised if he gets picked in, like, let's say the fifth round. And then let's say four years, you're like, oh, this Tyreek Smith guy, he had a 10-sack season. Yeah, like, it, he wouldn't shock me if he was one of those guys. Also, a guy from the A&M ends, Tyree Johnson and uh, Michael Clemens. They're both speed rushers who have some power to them. I wouldn't be surprised if they had a couple six to eight sack seasons somewhere in their career as well. A lot of talent in this edge class. There's a lot of guys here that can do a lot of different things. I haven't even gotten into a guy uh, like a uh, the USC uh, and Drake Jackson, who was a projected like top 10 pick to begin the year. He gets off the ball. He's long. He's quick. I wish I would see a little bit more thickness and play strength in his game, but he could be a 10 sack guy too. Like you see all these flashes from all these guys. You're like, damn, this edge class is really freaking good. So if you're a team who needs a pass rusher, these are the guys for you. And just my thoughts, my analysis, my rankings of all the pass rushers, the edge guys in this class. So kind of next out of the break on Barbershop Sports Talk, we're going to have Ryan Abraham on the show. Kind of next out of the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. Oh, we're back with Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have a very special guest with us, Ryan Abraham, owner and publisher of USCFootball.com. How you doing, man? Doing all right. Uh, we're in the middle of spring football for USC, so it's good to get some football talks, you guys, football paths and everything, so it's uh, it's nice. You know, that's going to be a long, long summer before we get to fall again, so it's nice to get a little spring uh, football to, to wet your whistle, I guess. How much do you enjoy the spring football? I don't know, like a lot. People kind of tease me because I like watching spring games on Pac-12 Network or wherever, just kind of seeing what's going on. And, you know, a lot of the times people have got away from actual games uh, as much. But there, I mean, I don't know. There's just something about it where you can see some of the early enrollees. You can see the younger players because all of the people that moved on to the NFL or lost their eligibility have, have left the program so it's kind of like what's left over before all the freshmen come uh, over the summer so but right now with the transfer portal I think it makes it even more important because there's a lot of new faces that are on different campuses and to see you know some of those players uh, especially USC who hit the transfer portal hard it's a really nice opportunity to get kind of a preview of what the season could look like is there anybody in particular in particular that's caught your eye during a spring ball yeah, so we don't get to watch uh, most of practice anymore like we used to could watch the whole thing. We get the first 20 minutes, but we get to talk to a lot of the players and coaches. And for what we've seen, uh, I mean, the biggest headliner for USC is Caleb Williams, the uh, you know, freshman quarterback coming over from Oklahoma, who ended up taking over the job uh, for Spencer Rattler uh, in the Texas game when they were down big early, and he made a, a great comeback there. Someone that's very dynamic around the football, which is something different from what we've seen at USC for many, many years. Uh, so he's probably been the most impressive. But a guy like Travis Dye was an all-purpose back from Oregon, you know, the best back on their roster, and he transfers into USC. So guys like that. Like there's a couple SEC players that came in. Shane Lee 
uh, the linebacker from Alabama was a freshman All-American a couple of years ago, and Romello hiked a, a fast defensive end, like a rush end kind of guy from Auburn. And those guys have looked really good too. So just remaking the roster is a lot easier to do with the era of transfer portal because you can break guys in and they can play right away. What have you been specifically hearing about Caleb Williams? What have coaches and players been saying when uh, you mentioned his name? Yeah, so it's all about leadership with him. And there's everyone's talk that we've talked to is like he came in and just was commanding the room and, and wanted to lead the team. And when we see him, we've interviewed him twice. I mean, he was on Good Morning America before spring football started, but uh, we've got to interview him twice so far during spring football. And, you know, each time a huge throng of media around him and he was just holding court he's just really smooth he's great um with the media you can tell why players want to follow him and it's just it's really been about leadership with him he had a there was a scrimmage on tuesday he apparently broke off like a 40-yard run um he's talking about trying to run less than he did last year i think he had seven six carries and uh you know maybe two-thirds of the year that he was starting but uh, he wants to run a little bit less than he was doing before, but that's definitely a dynamic aspect of this game. So how do you feel, because you mentioned this a few times, how do you feel the transfer portal has changed college football? So it's a whole other recruiting season now. And when if you were Lincoln Riley five, ten years ago, taking over a program that you need to change the culture, the roster wasn't where it had to be, like similar to what like when Pete Carroll took over, from Paul Hackett, uh, you know, recruiting was a big deal, obviously. Uh, they didn't have the early signing period then, but that first class was going to be tough to get enough players in to kind of fix the roster. Um, and now, with the era of the transfer portal, you can fix, it's not like a two, three year project. Like, you can fix the roster right away. And the, you're, you're going to lose guys for sure. The transfer portal isn't one way. Um, USC's lost you know, a ton of guys, but some of them are just guys you're sort of weeding out because it's just they weren't going to fit in a new culture. They were fine with Clay Helms' culture, but it wasn't a winning program. And Lincoln Riley, there's more accountability, there's more demands. And that wasn't for everyone, and you saw some players leave. But when you have a, a deficiency, like, hey, you need a rush end, you can go out and get somebody. Or uh, they only had one scholarship running back left. They brought in two. Pac-12 running backs uh, to add to the roster. So the fact that you, it's sort of like a free agency thing uh, in the NFL where, you know, it's, it's not just a draft. You have to trade, you have to mix, you know, sign players and stuff. And there's no training, but the transfer portal is essentially like free agency. So I think it just allows you to rebuild a roster uh, much faster than what you were able to do in the past. How much do you just like transfer portal yourself, and where do you think we're going to be going with this? Like, how do you think all this looks like, let's say, in like five, ten years? Yeah, that's a great question. I, mean, I, I like it. I, I'm for player mobility. The fact that players couldn't, you know, move around as easy before. Uh, but the rule where you can transfer once and there's no penalty, I think it's a good one. You know, I think that's a great way to just kind of come out and make it easier. There are so many NCAA exemptions and like a player that had great reasons transfer and play right away wasn't giving a waiver and then a player that had pretty weak reasons was giving one so it didn't make any sense which that's the NCAA as we know it uh, but allowing everyone to transfer at least once uh, I think makes sense and then what's going to look like I think they might have to 
put some limitations, uh, and they're starting to do that on when you can transfer. Um, you know, when coaches leave and things like that. Yeah, I mean, you want players to be able to go, uh, but there's just it just seems like it could happen at any time. Um, and I'll also be curious to see what happened after that first one. Right now, if you transfer once, uh, you, you'd have to sit out if you transfer again. Will there be some waiver process that you could still you know, transfer a second time and not have to sit out? I'm, I'm not sure where that's going to go, but right now you can only do it once. So Lincoln Riley, uh, where were you when you heard the news and what was your immediate reaction? Yeah, I think it was in the office and uh, it, was, it was crazy just uh, to hear like, it's going to be Lincoln Riley, and usually we get a pretty good idea um, of what's going on. You hear the, the names, you hear the you know the candidates and things, and then sometimes there's like a curveball at the last minute. I remember being in the car, getting a text from a uh, you know a source that was saying it's Sark, it's Sark when Steve Sarkisian was hired at USC. You're like, holy cow! Like, wasn't expecting that, you know. And the Lane Kiffin one too, where he's you know he gets hired and. He's only in Tennessee for a year. Uh, the Lincoln Riley one is more of a pleasant surprise because you just didn't think that someone like that was going to not even just be attainable. And I think a lot of things had to fall right for Lincoln Riley to be hired at USC. One of them being the, the Bedlam game that Oklahoma had to lose. If Oklahoma won, wins that game and they went to Pac-12, I mean, they got Big 12, he's probably not coming to USC. So uh, I think a lot of things sort of had to fall right, like, uh, you know, it was almost like USC won the lottery without one, but they had to go out and try. I mean, it, it was like you had to buy the lottery ticket and put in the work to try to get Lincoln Riley, and it wasn't a guarantee. Uh, but they did a good job of that, getting him, and obviously they did a good job of uh, keeping that quiet because no one I talked to that covers USC, that knows USC, uh, kind of knew that that was going to be happening. So it's a, it was a pretty big surprise for everybody. So I, what I find interesting about this is he's at Oklahoma. He came up under that program. They're, what, a top five to ten program every single year. And then he says, okay, we're going to jump to USC. And while USC is very historical, it has not had the success that Oklahoma's had, Oklahoma's had particularly this last decade. What do you think that USC offers for Lincoln to say, like, okay, because it doesn't get much better than Oklahoma. Like, it really doesn't. So what do you think USC offers that he's like, okay, I'm going to jump ship and I'm going to go here? Yeah, there's two blue blood programs, and so that's uh, it's just rare to see a coach do that. And the weird thing was, it happened like twice in two days when Brian Kelly left Notre Dame and went to LSU. So you never see it, and then it just happened twice uh, back to back. Uh, I think we can loud talk about it as far as like the opportunities you have in a city like Los Angeles. It's different. I mean, college football is unique. Uh, you know, Miami and, and USC are a lot different than. Uh, like in Oklahoma or Nebraska, or if you're like in a college town where there's the only game in town is college football, or you're in a huge international city that, uh, you're in Los Angeles, I mean, there's like LeBron James and Anthony Davis on one team, and, uh, you know, it, it, there's, you know, the, you know the Mookie Betts on the other. <laughs> Rams winning Super Bowls, and, uh, you know, Clippers, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, like there's, superstar athletes all over the city. USC is certainly not the only game in town, but it does bring some I think unique challenges, but uh, unique aspects for what the future of college football could be with name, image, and likeness and things like that. And I think you just saw the opportunity. And when we 
when USC is rolling, um, it's sort of like being Alabama without, um, you know, having a Georgia or a Florida or an LSU around you. USC can dominate the West Coast. And I think, you know, going to the Oklahoma, going to the SEC, it's going to be tough to win a conference championship and, you know, make the playoff in a four-team format where if you're at USC and you get things rolling, you win the Pac-12 and, you know, you go 11-1 or something, you have a really good chance of making the playoff. And it should be a lot more easy, you know, easier to, to uh, obtain a goal like that. So I think there's a lot of advantages, just the recruiting base itself, like being in Southern California, there's, he's only got three commitments for the class of 2023. Two of them are Southern California, one to Vegas. They're all five stars. And there's five stars all over the place. And, uh, you know, if you're in Oklahoma, he did a great job recruiting California, but it's not your home state. So I think there's just a lot of advantages there. Um, to you know, to be at USC and just you talked about his family being able to, his wife could drive his kids to Disneyland and stuff, you know, so things like that. Um, so we'll see if it works out for him. But it, I think there was a, enough reasons uh, for him to want to go and you know just establish his own culture somewhere where he took over a a, a program that was great in Oklahoma and they had a great culture with Bob Stoops and he made it he made it even better. Uh, this will be a rebuild, and I think that's a, a little bit different challenge too than taking over a successful program. Yeah, and that's interesting when you think about it. So when we think of this, because what I also am curious, uh, you mentioned this was kind of, you know, shut tight. Nobody really knew what was going on. Who did you think was going to be the head coach? Who did you think they were going to hire if Lincoln's name wasn't really coming up in this? Yeah, the, the name we probably heard the most was Matt Campbell from Iowa State. Seemed like a good option. I mean, Luke Fickle was the you know, Cincinnati head coach. Uh, they had the prior relationship. Mike Bond had already hired him once, but we just didn't hear that that was like a an actual like possibility. Um, but the, yeah, we thought it would be like a, a Matt Campbell sort of situation. I think fans were you know pretty happy with that. Like it's going to be a big upgrade over Clay Elton and whatever he had before. Someone that's actually won and you know turned a Iowa State team that was just to um, something really good. I mean, James Franklin's name was floating around. He ends up signing like a 10-year extension or whatever he got. So it, it was, there weren't like, um, you know, the, there were good candidates for sure, but there wasn't, you know, you never really thought the amazing candidate, the, the tier zero, I think they called it, Lincoln Riley, was a possibility that it popped. And you're like, wow, that's a uh, pretty big get. And it's, you know, USC kind of flexing its muscles really for the first time in quite a while. How, what do you think the timeline for USC to be contenders again is? Like, like, when do you think it's like, okay, we need to start seeing immediate results right now, or it's like, okay, Lincoln could kind of be on the hot seat, people are going to be kind of dissatisfied. What do you think the timeline is? I think by year two, um, the expectations will be like full throttle. Like, I think in this season, uh, and they're going to add some more players from the portal, depending on who they add. I think you're going to see, um, you know, they were a four-win team last year. If they can win eight or nine games, that's pretty impressive, but that's not going to be some nationally relevant uh, program. I think there's upside that they could win the Pac-12 in year one, which would be pretty impressive, but I don't know if the expectations will be there. But by year two, they'll have the 2023 class, which should be top five at least, um, it, you know, loaded with five stars and a lot of talent. The, you know, some of the transfers... But they brought in, they'll probably bring a few more. Um, I 
Tennessee, and it's a, a pretty young team uh, right now, so they should have a lot of guys coming back. Then I think the expectations are win the Pac-12 and try to make to a college football playoff. Uh, I don't think you can, you know, I guess there's an outside chance you could do that in year one, but I think by year two, uh, that's what, I think that's, you know, a, a realistic expectation. Uh, you know, it depends, it's going to depend on what, is Utah able to maintain the, the success they've had? Uh, is Dan Lanning going to do a good job at, at Oregon? He's an unproven head coach. Um, you know, those teams can, but it's, it's more about the Pac-12 than anything else. And the Pac-12 has just been down. So if USC takes care of their business, they should be winning the Pac-12. And if they take care of the business out of conference, then, you know, you're beating like a Notre Dame or whatever. Now you're talking potentially making the playoffs. So USC's never made a playoff. Uh, I don't know if they'll be able to do it in year two, but I think if they do have success in year one, I think the expectations for that is going to be high for year two. Where do you think Lincoln ranks in terms of coaches in college football? I mean, he's a top five coach for sure. I mean, if you if you were going to try to build rebuild the program, I mean, he might be at the top of the list. You know, like uh, uh, you know, Nick Saban is the best ever, right? But you know, seventy years old, like is that the one you want to like kind of rebuild your program around? How long is he going to be there? You know, Davos Winnie's done an amazing job. Um, you know, Kirby Smart, you know, he'd be up there. As far as, like, young, innovative, offensive-minded coaches, uh, I mean, Lincoln Riley's got to be at the top of the list. So, if, you know, if you had your pick, like, there's there's some really great coaches out there, but he's he's up there with all of them. Um, you know, making playoff appearances, winning Heisman trophies, things like that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough to do better with him right now. Where, what do you think is the biggest difference between how Lincoln Riley's running things and maybe how opposed to things are run in years past with other USC head coaches? Like, do you see a difference? Yeah, the, there's a lot. I mean, so USC's just had dysfunction at the very top of not just the athletic department, but the university scandals, the, you know, um, varsity blues scandal was really crazy. They've had bad athletic, athletic directors who made bad head coaching hires. And getting a guy like Clay Helton, I mean, he was around the program for seven years. It's He was not a good college head coach. And the way he practiced, the way he prepared the team, he was a guy that was just happy to be there. And instead of trying to go out and win, it was more about extending his time. Like, how long can I be the head coach at USC? Practices weren't going to be hard. They were going to win games because they had recruited better players than some of the other teams. They weren't going to get pushed that much in practice. They weren't getting developed. Uh, there was just a lot of problems. And we, we, we talk to players now, uh, just comparing this year to last year, and most everyone's trying to like stay away from that. But we heard from Miller Moss, the you know, quarterback, uh, about, you know, hey, what's the difference? And I, I think he wasn't, wasn't trying to be mean, but he had said that you know, they had a lot of success in the red zone uh, in the scrimmage. And he said it helps that we actually practice red zone situations. <laughs> So you're like, oh, so you didn't practice in those situations before. And uh, Darwin Barlow, the running back, said, you know, the, the offense was so simple under uh, Graham Harrell. They installed the whole thing in three days, in three practices in the spring. And Barlow was like, yeah, it wasn't that challenging for us as running backs. If we didn't know what the play was, we would just run a swing round, you know. And so they would make little comments like this. And you're like, what is going on? Um, so I, I just think it's more like, I, the way I describe it is, when you see the way they're running drills, you see the way they're conducting themselves, it seems like 
championship. And it just felt like with Clay Elton, he was never a super successful assistant coach, certainly not a head coach. Um, I don't think they knew what it took to be a championship type of a team. And with, you know, Lincoln Riley learning from Bob Stoops and being able to go to the playoffs himself, when the trophies, I think they understood what the championship kind of level stuff is, where they just, for years past, that just wasn't uh, in the DNA of Clay Helton and his, his coaching staff. Why do you think the Pac-12 has been down for so long? Part of the reason is USC's been down. <laughs> they kind of need USC to be good. Uh, but we've seen, you know, like when Stanford and Oregon were kind of good together, and Stanford was going to New Year's Six Bowl games and stuff, uh, you know, with Harbaugh and, and David Shaw, like that's been helpful. They've had bad leadership in the Pac-12. Larry Scott was just a terrible um, commissioner and uh, spent so much money on himself. <laughs> you know, it was more about him and the Pac-12 than it was about feeding money to the institutions. And, but for as far as tenure, he didn't even talk to the athletic directors. I wasn't even, he didn't care. Um, so, I think a lot of it has to do with the leadership. Uh, it was, I don't think the leadership was great before Larry Scott. He did some good things early on, but then just sort of like, um, it kind of used the conference like an ATM machine, man. He was renting $5 million a year. They were paying $8 million a year in rent, um, you know, to, to be in a fancy San Francisco uh, high rise. I mean, there's just a lot of waste going on for, and, and you know, the conference just doesn't have the same kind of passion for college football that you would have in like the SEC or the Big Ten. There's a lot of stuff going on on the West Coast. They love their Olympic sports too, but I mean, people are surfing and skiing and whatever they're doing. I mean, it's there's a lot of other stuff to the lifestyle than just uh, college athletics. And I think that kind of hurts it too. So, but having USC be good, I think will go a long way to kind of uh, helping the Pac-12. I mean, Pete Carroll did it uh, when he was there and it's really rising tide would lift all the boats, you know, USC can rise that tide, I think the rest of the Pac-12 can kind of rise along with it. Because I guess when I think about it, like, right, like, the West Coast, it's so rich in recruiting. It's so absolutely rich in recruiting. So, I mean, theoretically, I mean, if you, besides the South, I mean, they're probably getting, they have the best athletes. Yeah, and I think that we've seen a trend, though, where there's, the, you know, a lot of the quarterbacks from across the country are from California, you know, Bryce Young. It's still a California kid, you know, with the Heisman and Alabama. There's not as many of the defensive linemen and offensive linemen. You don't see the the 300-pound guys that can run really fast uh, as much on the West Coast as you do in the South and in, in Texas to an extent. Uh, so that could be part of the problem, too. Uh, but, I, I mean, a lot of it, I think, is just uh, it's, it, it's not the end-all. It's not the... This is where life lives, you know, we live, breathe everything, uh, college football, like you could have in the South. There's a lot more towns where, you know, if you're in Auburn, Alabama, or, you know, there's there's states in the SEC that host multiple um, Power 5 programs that don't have a professional sports team at all in the entire state, um, let alone, you know, like, 12 of them in your city. So it's like, it's. I think there's some differences there. There's some major media markets that just don't get, you know, Seattle and Phoenix aren't run by college football. It's big, but it's not, you know, Tuscaloosa, that's college football year-round. Yeah. It's just not that way on a lot of the West Coast uh, 
Cities. You know, I was. I have a friend who's like a really big Georgia Bulldogs fan. He's like, you don't understand. He's like, it just means more. Like he's like, I, I know it's kind of cheesy to say, but it just means more. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. And you know, Georgia, Atlanta, at least, you know, they have, that's a city, and you got the Braves and, and Falcons. All you know, they got all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that's that's kind of rare. The fact that Georgia, they, there's that passion there. And we've seen states like Tennessee where there's a lot of, um, you know, Titans fans or whatever, or, you know, Predators. But you know. I think Tennessee still rules, you know, as far as like the stand base in the in the state. If you're in Nashville, you're probably a huge Vols fan, you know, more than than anything. But it's not always that way on the West Coast compared to the South. How many people in LA would you say are USC fans as opposed to let's say UCLA, Lakers, Dodgers, like in terms of where their sports fandom lies? So the, if you talk, like I talked to Bill Plasky and. His, his idea of the pecking order starts with uh, the Lakers and then the Dodgers and then USC. Um, so, and, you know, after that, it's like you can some different orders, but USC is up there. So it's, it, and when there was no NFL in, the, in Los Angeles and USC football was rolling, it was a big deal. You know, the Rams just won the Super Bowl and the, you know, the Chargers got Justin Herbert and a lot of young talent. Um, there's a lot more football now in Los Angeles than there was during the PKL era, but I think it's still probably, you know, Lakers, Dodgers, and uh, and then USC as far as like the popularity goes in the city. So you mentioned the Pete Carroll era. What made the Pete Carroll era so special? I mean, winning is the most important thing, and he won, and uh, he did it in a way that was good for Los Angeles as far as his personality goes. Um, he was just a very gregarious person. He knew how to work the system. He could involve celebrities in it. Uh, he made it like Hollywood's team. It was cool to be a USC football fan when he was rolling. So it's it's winning, but it's also winning with a certain style, like a Los Angeles style. And I think he was he excelled at that, and uh, it really won over a lot of people in the city. How differently do you think things go if he never leaves? Well, if the sanctions still hit, I think it would have been tough. And, and the, the issue with Pete Carroll, to me, towards the end, it was more about, well, if you see Nick Saban, the most important, like the, the most astounding thing he's done is been able to maintain like these little mini dynasties to go on and on. And, and if you lose your defensive coordinator, you hire the best one. And at least when we saw the end of the Pete Carroll era, he wasn't, he wasn't replacing great assistant coaches with other great assistant coaches he was promoting from within so my theory is he was trying to create his own coaching tree as opposed to just going out and hiring people from somewhere else and I think that would have been his downfall too I mean it, they didn't look that good his last year in 2009 um, and you know I, with the sanctions it certainly would have made things tougher he would have had to change I think a little bit and gone out instead of like promoting your graduate assistants to try to make them your assistant coaches, just going out and, you know, you're on top of the college football world. Go get the best guy from somewhere. And he was kind of reluctant to do that, so we'll see. I I think it would have been tough to maintain what he was doing unless he made some changes to, to his philosophies, too. Do you think that's something he would have done, or do you think it was... That's probably not something he would have done. Or a lesson he would have learned at USC. Yeah. <laughs> so... Reggie Bush, Matt Leiner, how special were those two guys when you're watching that in real time? 
just uh, they, they were just they transcended the sport. You know, we would you would see people from like People Magazine coming to practice to interview Matt Liner, and that we just hadn't seen stuff like that before. So it's a uh, it was a pretty special run, and it's it's like I get to talk to Matt uh, quite a bit now. They're both on Fox doing uh, college football work, so it's good to see them kind of doing stuff again. But they really made a huge difference in the city for the school, um, you know, winning Heisman's and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the success he had, um, yeah, it, it, it was pretty special. I think they're both, you know, Reggie Bush is a little, you know, there's some issues there with the whole sex and stuff. But, but I mean, I think people love Liner, uh, and a lot of people love Reggie too, but they just kind of were the faces for that era that uh, brought back the glory that's been, you know, it was away for a while. And the crazy thing is I think they're a tad bit underappreciated because I think sometimes with the guys, based off how your NFL career goes, we kind of forget what you did in college. Uh, like, Matt Leinart, obviously, it didn't end up, he, he was quote-unquote a bust. Reggie Bush was probably disappointed for being the number two pick, but, like, those guys were, like, insanely good, like, apex college football players. And I think it gets lost because, like, it's like, that was, like, 15 years ago. Yeah, I mean, like, Matt Leinart's first game was at Auburn, and Auburn had like three NFL running backs, an NFL quarterback, um, you know, and he goes in there, his very first college pass was a touchdown, and they shut Auburn out. Uh, you know, it's crazy. Like this, you know, so coming off Carson Palmer's Heisman year, and he comes in there and, you know, beats Auburn. They were beating SEC teams, beating the brains out of them um, in that early part. And, uh, you know, beating Oklahoma 55 to... 19 or whatever, like, holy cow, like, they did some stuff that you just, um, yeah, it's, it, it was a really glory, uh, glory day for USC, and people are hoping, like, a rally can kind of get back to that. So, I'm curious, for you, when, when were you watching this, you were like, okay, we're on to something right now, when was that moment for you, like, I think you mentioned with Matt Liner was the touchdown, what about for Reggie, when was that when you're like, okay, this is something right here? Yeah, I think it started just, uh, even Pete Carroll's first year, they went 6-6, six and six, but they weren't competitive in all those games. And then by the second year, they lost early, I think it was to uh, maybe Washington State and Kansas State. Then he's gone on this roll, and that was the Carson Palmer's Heisman year. And when they beat Notre Dame in the Coliseum that year, that kind of locked up the Heisman for Palmer. And you, you kind of knew, like, this is... If you had a playoff then, like, no one wanted to play USC. And they played Iowa in the Orange Bowl that year. And Tony Banks was, like, the runner-up to Heisman. And, uh, Iowa runs an opening kickoff for a touchdown. Everyone's like, oh, boy, it's going to be rough for USC. And USC just pummels them after that. Um, you kind of knew at that point, like, okay, this is rolling. But could they replace your Heisman winner? And then you realize, wow, yeah, that the cupboard was full. They had a lot of good talent. You know, Linda White, Reggie Bush, and... You know, Matt Lyon and all those guys, and you're like, okay, this is, uh, they got something special going here. So, I'm just curious to know your thoughts on both Drake London and Drake Jackson uh, as guys that obviously left the USC program. You got to see them for a while and their NFL prospects. Yeah, they're the two highest ranked ones from, from USC. I think, I, I think, uh, Drake Jackson's on a pro day. He's put on a bunch of weight. I think he's going to be a good kind of rush end for, the NFL, there's just quick twitch, uh, athleticism. Uh, he's a special type of player. And with Drake London, like just the fact that he can make catches anywhere, uh, you know, the basketball background, like a lot of NFL teams like that. Um, 
you watch him play, and he's just he's just a baller. Now we haven't seen him work out since his injury uh, in the Arizona game, but he's supposed to do a pro day I think next week. So we'll see if he can get a workout in for scouts before the draft. But uh, it looks like he's going to be a top five. I mean, a, a, a top first round pick, uh, which would make sense. He's just had a ton of production in uh, college. And. Lastly, I do want to ask you about this, too, because he's from the Pac-12. Uh, Kayvon Thibodeau, the Oregon, and I don't know how much you've gotten to see him, if at all, uh, but just what are your thoughts of him as a player? Because he's a guy that's always been talked about a lot for the last two, three years of being the potential number one pick, and obviously he's kind of slid down a little bit as of late, but just what are your thoughts of him, if any? Yeah, I covered him a lot in high school, and I really liked him. Not the biggest guy in the world, but the another guy that is an uber-athlete, and you saw the production when he was healthy. Um, so I'm curious to see where he ends up. I think there's gonna he's gonna be one of those guys where there's some teams that are sort of like, eh, not really into it. And there's gonna be other teams that are like, yeah, we can see what he's able to do. And you get after a quarterback in the NFL, and you can create sacks. Um, that's that's something that's coveted. And I feel like there's gonna be a GM out there that's gonna use a high pick on going. We're gonna get some sacks with this guy, so let's pick him up. Ryan, I want to thank you for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. And once again, I want to thank Ryan Abraham for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank all of you for tuning into this episode. The 417th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk. Oh.